I'm Denise. She's a non-fiction editor. And I'm Louise. She's a fiction editor. And together, we're the Editing Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Editing Podcast. So Louise, tell everyone what we're talking about this week. Woohoo! I'm interviewing you. <laughs> Revenge. <laughs> so you're going to tell me four things I'd need to know if I wanted to become a non-fiction editor, which I don't, by the way. Been there, done that, moved along. <laughs> so we're going to focus on four key things. The main types of non-fiction editing and the kinds of things a non-fiction editor needs to look out for working on complex materials, the move to digital content and the role of the editor, because I think that's quite a, a specific one that's, well, a, a little bit more um, relevant for, yeah. for your field than mine. Yeah. And the ethical issues the editor or proofreader needs to be aware of, particularly when working with students. So mm. let's start with the main types of non-fiction editing. And I guess what I want to understand is where there are similarities with fiction editing and where there are differences. So let's start with the similarities. Yeah, so you're you're dead right. At its core, there's plenty of crossover. We're dealing with big picture structural work like developmental editing, critiques that assess the manuscript's strengths and weaknesses and its suitability for the target audience, and sensitivity reading, which, although it may not be called that, is still carried out. So when I edit fiction, I'm mindful of how the dialogue and narrative um, come across and whether the language used is authentic and where that language is authentic, is it maybe offensive or harmful? And is that justifiable for the story? So is it mindful or mindless harm? Mm -hmm. So you're doing the same thing with nonfic, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. The same principles of equality, inclusivity and diversity apply in nonfiction, but in some situations, such as educational materials, we have to go a step further and be aware of the intended market. And that can mean ensuring there are no references to topics that may be offensive there, such as dice games, which are viewed as gambling in some countries, oh, oh. Um, or references to certain foods that are subject to religious restrictions and others. So that's interesting, because I'm thinking that in fiction, it would be at least necessary for an author to be aware of any such restrictions like the ones you've mentioned so mm -hmm. that the authenticity of of their story doesn't end up dropping off a cliff but in your situation there's a different kind of pressure because these are, um, are prescribed as teaching materials which brings yeah. with it an extra level of responsibility yeah absolutely and if you don't create something that is suitable for that market with teaching materials that perhaps have to be ministry approved they just they just won't get that approval and then in non-fiction just like with fiction I'm dealing with sentence level editing, such as line editing, copy editing, and quality control proofreading. And I think the differences are more about what's been done at those different levels rather than the scope of the editing mm -hmm. itself. So let's focus on the macro first. You call it developmental structural editing, just like I would for fiction. That's big picture work for you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we might call it content editing because mm -hmm. ultimately it's about looking at whether the content works. So developmental yeah. nonfiction editors will be looking at things like the overall structure of a book or article, uh, whether the information is delivered in a logical progression and whether the author builds on their premise and provides evidence in a cohesive argument. So kind of like a non-fictional narrative arc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. So in education materials, they'll be assessing whether the content is suitable for the level 
if it's a course book or supporting materials, does it match the curriculum? Is the language graded appropriately? Do the exercises make sense and progress the student in a structured and scaffolded way? Uh, whereas in a business book, uh, the focus may be on what, what's the author's goal? Do they have a clear structure? Is it a how-to book? If so, does it actually tell how-to? Yeah. Because <laughs> very often that's the intention, but it's not actually what happens in the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, just becomes sorry a ramble. Yeah, uh -huh. it's, it starts off with the best of intention, but doesn't quite deliver. And sometimes it may need case studies and examples to support the author's argument. And that's where um, something like a scope and sequence document can be really helpful. <sighs> open sequence <laughs> I learned about that term from you I tell you you really opened my eyes with that because it, it really helped me write my business books and courses and blog posts so much more efficiently by thinking in terms of scope and sequence it sounds like quite a technical concept but it's actually rather artful because it, it really smooths the writing process big time and the thinking behind the writing it, it really does help you kind of form that creative structure yeah. in your head it helps you just to focus on what the purpose is mm. of of your writing who you're speaking to and what you want them to get from what you're writing and how you get to that so so i suppose the equivalent obviously in in fiction is you know are you a planner or a pantser and yeah and absolutely we'd call it an outline um right out of just like mm -hmm. with with a scope and sequence an outline can be really really detailed mm -hmm. or it could be quite brief it really depends on the author's choice but yeah. yeah and it's a great tool for people who struggle with a blank page which I definitely mm. do <laughs> I know <laughs> I, I get the fear you know that yes I get the fear with a blank page but but once you've mapped it out and and refined a scope and sequence it makes the road ahead feel so much more manageable. And I definitely recommend it for any nonfiction writer. Yeah, me too. Now, you don't offer developmental editing, and yet I hear you talk about structure a lot. Does that mean the lines between developmental work and line and copy editing are blurry? Um, yeah, I think they can be, but depending on your client. Oh. So if I'm working with a publisher or an NGO, by the time a manuscript or a report comes to me for copy editing then the content issues have generally been resolved earlier in the process either by the managing editor or the content editor or whoever so I'm focusing on a more technical copy edit of applying house style correcting spelling punctuation and grammar and preparing the file for typesetting by using word styles or tagging the document with codes mm. and particularly with the educational materials that I work on I wouldn't be intervening to change sentence structure etc unless there was an issue with clarity and even then I'd be consulting with the content editors for the very reason that the language will already have been carefully considered for level. So hang on a minute because um I think it would be really handy actually to dig into this issue of level because you mentioned that before and I, sh I should have picked up on it then. So are we talking about English language teaching materials here or does it go beyond that? ELT definitely and um, actually a lot of non-fiction materials even beyond education need to be considered in terms of level so in ELT yes we're talking about very targeted uh, levels of language ability which are you know set in different bands there's sort of six recognized levels but in any other um, teaching you know whether it's 
you know, for GCSEs or A-levels, you've got different levels towards the ultimate qualification that you have to move through and what you're teaching in that book has to match that. So you need to know whether the reader is experienced and knowledgeable about the material or are they a beginner or are they somewhere in between? And the editor has to edit with that in mind. So it is more nuanced than just technical. Uh, because you have to respect the reader's ability or what stage they're at in the knowledge journey, if you like, and make sure that the language and the content is, um, is appropriate to them. So, for example, an adult beginner in English and a primary school beginner in English might be learning the same language and, say, and they're at the same level of perhaps beginner, like A1 but you wouldn't give them the same types of exercises yeah, to do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it has to be tailored to that as well. But you would even think that maybe, I mean, is this right that even with, say, a business book, you know, you could say have someone like a business author thinks, right, I'm going to create a how-to guide on uh, uh, recycling old um, f furniture and mm -hmm. upcycling it and selling it. Yeah. And if they know a lot about the topic, but they've, they they're kind of hoping they're going to be able to convert uh people who are new to it you know that that, that I think sometimes authors come unstuck with what their readers know so even Absolutely. at that stage you're you're thinking you're you're probably when you're working yeah. with indie authors you're having to think about levels sort of maybe more yeah oh definitely because it's um whether whether it's an like you see an indie author writing about ups upselling or whatever or a Upselling or say up upcycling upcycling, upcycling that's your old furniture. Yes, I, I knew that's what you meant. I, I just got the word wrong there. Uh, whether you're talking about upcycling or whether it's an academic writing for a, a more general public audience, you oh. really have to consider who the audience is, and that's where the editor can really be the reader's advocate. And it's why it's quite often useful for the editor not to be overly familiar with the subject oh that's a good point yes. yeah yeah because if if they're familiar with the subject too they've not necessarily got that distance and they're not necessarily seeing it through the eyes of the intended reader whereas if somebody's writing about upcycling and I don't know the first thing about it I'm mm -hmm. going to spot where the writer needs to explain something better yeah or where they're using language they're making assumptions about terminology and things that, yeah, that yeah. the lay reader won't understand. Perfect sense. Yeah. So what about um, thinking more about your, your work with um, indie business authors? Um, is, is, there, is there sort of um, a case where you might end up with a situation where some of them might be coming to you um, for a particular level of editing, but they've had no other work done on it before? Yeah, I think that's quite common with indie business authors is that it's not unusual for them, in my experience anyway, to ask for a copy edit without having had any previous editorial mm. input. And in that case, I am more likely to blur the lines if it needs it, perhaps identifying where there are gaps in the flow of information or where sections need to be expanded with more detail. And I might suggest adding examples or case studies or maybe taking some out if there are too many that illustrate the same points. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you know, they can get carried away with because yeah. they have lots of case studies and yeah. but they're all essentially saying the same thing. Yeah. So you have to think quite carefully more is about... Le less is more. Less is more. And it's just padding and fluff and you don't really need that. Yeah. And, and I do that as part of a copy edit, really. After discussion with 
the author obviously about what it is they're looking for so what I would term a copy edit usually encompasses a bit of that if necessary plus stylistic line editing as well as the technical copy edit because I feel I find it very difficult to separate the two out especially Mm -hmm. if there's been no previous editorial input and they're not looking for lots of separate rounds of editing because obviously there's a budgetary implication there Mm -hmm. as well isn't Mm -hmm. there absolutely yeah but but if I felt that you know, structurally, it was a long way from being ready, then I definitely suggest that they paused on my editing to have a proper developmental edit or even a manuscript critique um, from a developmental editor to give them a good review of the whole structure of the book. So that's really similar to fiction. I Mm. take the same approach. And what about proofreading? Is that different from how we work with fiction? Essentially not. Um, with publishers, NGOs and comms agencies, the content's established and I'm usually working on PDF page proofs to mark up any lingering spelling, punctuation and grammar or house style errors mm-hmm. that might have slipped through. And of course, any layout issues um, that you're only going to pick up at the PDF stage. So things like bad line breaks, orphans and widows, spacing issues, or missing formatting, you know, like missing bolds and italics and things like that. Well, you have a course about that. <laughs> would that be would that be suitable for that for this yeah, market? I would think yeah, it would. I think it would. Yeah. So it's called how to mark up PDF page proofs, and I actually it would be ideal for this situation um, because it's teaching you how to do that efficiently and effectively, and, oh, and familiarise oh. yourself with the Adobe Reader DC interface, which is the one that's most commonly used, and it's free. And it is free. It, not my course. No. <laughs> the, the Adobe <laughs> DC Reader, uh, Reader DC is free. Um, and that's all yeah. you need to mark up page proofs. I think there's this misconception that you need to have the pro version, but not for not for proper proofreading. Um, you just need mm. the free Reader DC. And yeah, my course can tell you all about that. So yeah, we'll stick a link in the show notes, eh? Yeah. So... And the other thing to mention about that as well, about proofreading, is that with my indie author clients, I might be much more likely to do a proof edit in Microsoft Word, which we've discussed previously on the podcast. We have, um, but let's just explain it quickly here. Mm. here. Um, So this is like a hybrid service that's based on the idea of a traditional quality control proofread but we're actually amending the raw text rather than marking up design page proofs. So you come across you come across this a lot like I do, but mm. I've heard you banging on about other stuff that's 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 <laughs> not <Hang on>. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, just because it's a bit of a, a it sounds like a minefield to me. Um, uh, uh, talking about answer keys and whatnot. So mm. um, can we talk a little bit more about more complex proofreading that that nonfiction editors and proofreaders might come across on, on, on more complex editing? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it because what we call proofreading can expand a lot with nonfiction, again, depending on your client and the type of material that you're working on. Give us an example. Okay, so most of my work from publisher clients is English language teaching materials. Mm-hmm. So that's student books, workbooks, teacher's guides, and supplementary materials such as practice tests and self-study books. And the proofreading brief for this type of work, as well as checking for all the usual stuff that I've just mentioned, mm-hmm. it will typically include 
a much broader range of things to check because there are so many different elements on a page. Now, these could be things like uh, lists, word pools, grammar boxes, tip boxes, uh, things like I can statements, which yeah, is yeah. the learner outcome for that lesson. Does that uh -huh. match the objective for that lesson? Uh, things like audio or video icons and track numbers, cross references to additional activities at the back of the book or references to audio scripts and teacher's guides. Uh, teacher's guides will cross reference to the relevant pages in the student's book or the workbook. So they need to be checked as well. So look, this is a completely different ballgame to proofreading, essentially straight text. And mm. it's such a good reminder why proofreaders, professional proofreaders really do need specialist training if they're going to take on this type of work. There is no way that knowledge of conventional spelling, grammar and punctuation is going to be enough. Not even close. You're, you're spot on because it's really detailed oh. work um, and things like artwork needs to be checked very carefully against the artwork brief and the content, um, mm -hmm. especially when it's in the exercises. So you're, you're looking at it and you're asking questions like, does it match the brief that was given to the illustrator? Does it clearly illustrate what's needed for the student to answer correctly? Um, in my most recent job, um, I was the first person to see the artwork in place, which isn't unusual for the proofreader. And I had so many comments on the artwork <laughs> <laughs> along the lines of uh, the brief asked for a block of flats by the beach. This looks like a block of flats sitting on the beach. Could we add yeah. in a path or a garden to separate the two? You know, yeah. things like that yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and then yeah. you know the brief asks for the girl to be in pain with stomach ache she just looks a bit sad here can she be redrawn bending over with her face screwed up because that that in context that picture has to look substantively different from the others so that the student can choose the correct one yeah. you know so and, you can't confuse them that, the thing is those images aren't there to make the page prettier no, yeah, they're not. No. They're not. Then it's not a design or a brand function. Absolutely with these not. kinds of materials, the written message is only half the story. An artwork that doesn't match is going to confuse the reader and distract them from the learning. This is interesting because you're not just proofreading, which um, people often think means checking text. It's it's so much more more than that. It, it makes me think actually the term proofreading really doesn't do the word justice. It really is content quality controlled isn't it yeah yeah it's right really yeah and of course the big thing with these sorts of materials is I have to cross check the answer key too and that is oh. so important especially when it's a self-study book yeah yeah because the, 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 the students are relying on that answer key being correct so if cuts yeah. and changes to the content are made you know quite late in the day you know maybe a question has to be cut from each exercise to make the content fit in the page then there may not have been time to update the answer key. Yeah, yeah. The consequences can be horrendous. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the same goes for recording scripts for any listening and speaking activities. Uh, any changes need to be made to the script that's going to be recorded, but also to the audio scripts in the book and to the answer key as well. And that's why I work with three screens. <laughs> let's move on to that because there's there's been a lot of expansion into digital content over the past few years and I'd imagine that non-fiction editors have a, an important role there I mean Abs from what you're absolutely. saying I mean just from your work yeah yeah I mean these skills these editorial skills are still needed but they may be used in a different way 
So working on digital learning materials means learning to use new platforms and software, as you might be asked to work maybe in the back end of a learning management system or on templates or authoring tools that are going to be imported into a digital platform. At which point knowledge of Microsoft Word and all the lovely macros and other add-ins go out the window. I mean, you've, yeah. got, a, you've got a completely yeah, switch it, your mindset into a different space. Absolutely. Yeah. And I imagine there, there's going to be different workflows in play too. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, because we're out, outside of the traditional publishing mm. workflow and environment now, although it's still major publishing houses that are doing these things, yeah. as well as lots of other new players in the markets too. So you might find that you need to familiarise yourself with new ways of team working. Um, so for example... I recently started a new job that's involved getting to grips with Clockify, whereas I usually use Toggle for time tracking. Um, we're using Airtable, which is a bit like Trello on steroids. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. It's so impressive. And I am in awe of how the project manager uses it to manage the workflow of a huge team with literally thousands of tasks. Oh my goodness. Proofreading in templates that writers and editors have populated. And then I'm transferring that information to a spreadsheet. I'm using an HTML converter to generate code that the platform will read. And we're working in Google Docs and communicating via Slack, um, both of which I'm comfortable with, but it's a whole new way of working um, to, to develop and to create a, an end product. So we're also, we're working in Google Docs and communicating via Slack, both of which I'm comfortable with. And it's an agile workflow. So we're doing things like we're working in sprints and we're having scrums. <laughs> and much of it, it's all new to me. And it's, and new, it's language. new language. It's yeah. new language and, and finding out what these things mean. You know, I'm doing a lot of listening and I'm just going with the flow. <laughs> yeah, I feel a bit dizzy if I'm honest and I'm not even doing it. So... <clears throat> I think what that makes me ask is what would you say to listeners who think that that just sounds like so far out of their comfort zone they think they can't they can't do it I get that and but while it's true that apart from proofreading the content none of what I've described is actually a core proofreading skill mm. the attention to detail and the methodical approach that you need for this sort of work definitely are mm core skills that editors have and proofreaders in particular and what's what's needed um, when you're joining a team like this I think and what is valued is your ability to read a brief and communicate well within a team as well read, as your proofreading skills read the brief I think that was yeah. the very very first thing I learned when I did my core proofreading training mm -hmm. back in 2006 and it's interesting because uh, yeah, of, of course, you know, especially if you like when I when I used to work with publishers, um, of course, I would follow a brief, but those briefs are often very similar. And it's easy mm -hmm. once you've been in a in a single workflow for yes. a long time to sort of just like take it for granted. Absolutely. And, 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 and yeah. you must never forget that. You must Absolutely. always read the brief every time because it might just be tweaked a little bit, but it might actually be tweaked quite a lot. And that will determine what's expected of you and if you're in the team like the one you've just described where you've got this really complex workflow that that mm -hmm. you don't do what you've been asked that has knock-on effects for oh, absolutely. so many people 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it is a lesson worth learning. That is such a fundamental. But like you say, we can get complacent, especially if we're doing a lot of work for the same publisher mm-hmm. or the same client on similar types of stuff. Um, you do it's easy to easy to slip into a routine. Mm-hmm. So this definitely is keeping me on my toes, which is a good thing. It's <laughs> yeah, a good thing. It is. It is. So I, I mean, I definitely say that people should make the most of these changing opportunities in publishing. Um, I think we have to embrace them and these new ways and not be fearful of the unfamiliar. Um, and in this job, I've been lucky to have a very thorough onboarding. Don't you just love the jargon? <laughs> <laughs> and that has made me feel it's okay to take my time to read through all the very many playbooks and checklists and spreadsheets and things and ask questions. Uh. And as the project manager actually said to me, she said, we're laying the tracks in front of us as we go. So, so she's learning too. Ab- the whole team are. And it's yeah. quite um, it's quite liberating because sometimes when you're brought on as a proofreader at the end of a project, you feel that everybody's got it down pat and they know what yeah. they're doing, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and if you're new, that can lead to imposter syndrome yeah. and all sorts of things. Whereas yeah. actually when you're all learning together. Yeah. Definitely. So things are constantly changing based on feedback from the client. And you do really get the feeling that you're that everyone's working together as a team. Mm. And when you work on your own in your office most of the time, like we do, it is nice to feel that you're part of something bigger and for it to be so visible in your daily work routine with your scrums when you actually get yeah. to see people face to face. That's a good point, though. A lot of editors, I, I do hear editors saying that, you know, sometimes they feel cut off from the team environment when they, especially when they've been used to, um, say, working in an office, for example. Mm-hmm. So Definitely. Denise, we've we talked about business books and education and digital content. What other non-fiction editing is out there? Well, to put it simply, anything that's not fiction. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> as with fiction, it's a hugely broad catch-all term with many specialisms and subspecialisms. Uh, for example, academic and scholarly editing is a huge field and encompasses everything from undergraduate dissertations to PhD theses and postdoctoral research papers and grant applications. And specialist knowledge and a higher degree can be an advantage here, but it isn't always necessary. Um, But there are also important ethical considerations when working in this field. So every university has a different take on the level of intervention allowed and, in fact, whether it's allowed at all. And it can even vary by department within the same institution. That's really important that editors do their due diligence um, when it when it comes to embarking on this kind of work, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of people might think that working on theses and dissertations is an easy way of getting started in an editorial career Mm. as a freelancer. But I would urge caution. Um, Yes, the work is plentiful and it can be easy to pick up clients who need your help, even if it's not always the best paid, but it can be. Mm. But aside from the ethical considerations I've mentioned, there's a lot of skill to working in this field and you need to understand the conventions particularly around the different referencing styles and how to handle things like suspected plagiarism. And I think it's worth mentioning that when editors and proofreaders work on materials beyond the scope allowed by an institution, 
that's found out it isn't just the student who could end up in the doghouse the editor could be accused of collusion too mm. which is serious yeah, I mean, yeah so yeah if you're thinking about taking this work on do your due diligence so is there anything else that non-fic editors might work on oh go on surprise me oh where could I start where should I start marketing communications web content specialism such as cookery books or board games or travel books poetry or memoir we haven't even touched on those and I guess I'd say where there's content written or visual there's room for quality control and therefore an editor that's a really nice way to wrap up because it's a good reminder that there's nothing to stop any editor marketing and editorial specialism that they have experience of or take pleasure in yeah so I'm off to proofread the text in Genshin Impact Uh (laughs) and that is that is the new game that my teenager persuaded me to download onto my iPad and that I might be slightly obsessed with. Anyway, so that's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can rate, review and subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whichever platform you prefer. Yes, thank you so much for listening to the editing podcast and we'll pop that link to my course in the show notes. For now, she's been Louise. And she's been Denise. Join us again soon. Bye. Bye.